Luke chapter 24 is where we want to be this morning. Second in this series, if you will, about being rescued uh, when Jesus comes calling. In our story today, it's after Jesus has risen, risen from the dead. He comes into contact with these two guys walking down the road. It's a story about the two men uh, from Emmaus. Uh, and prior to that, a guy by the name of Thomas gets a five-minute show-and-tell from Jesus. In fact, Thomas wanted proof that it was Jesus, and he actually sticks his fingers in Jesus' side to prove that this was the resurrected Christ. But these two guys walking to Emmaus, who comes into contact with Jesus, doesn't realize it, gets a three-hour dissertation about who Jesus is about who he was and what he's going to do and all those kinds of things. So why the difference? Why did Thomas get a five-minute quick show-and-tell, but these guys get three hours of walking with Jesus? We want to look at that this morning. And I think a lot of it is maybe this. I think perhaps maybe Jesus spent more time with these two men who were hopeless to show them and to show us how to have a living hope in this hopeless world. Maybe how to get it accomplished. Maybe how to do what he says we need to do. A preacher told of going through his father's effects after his father had passed away. Among the things that he found was a seventh grade report card. It was actually back in the fall of 1941. This seventh grade report card showed the grading scale on the back of it. There was an A and a B, a C, a D, and an F. And something he had never seen before on this, um, who would have thought that you could get a grade lower than an F? I want you to know I tried at times. Uh, I was pretty doggone close, but the teacher decided, eh, as low as you can go is an F. But, and we know what F means, right? When you get an F, it means failure, right? It means you flunked it, okay? There's no hope for D minus, D minus passes at least. F is an F. But apparently there was something even worse than an F. This guy's father had a G written on it, okay? Now, if an F was a failure, what's a G? And he said that on the back of the report card, in the explanation of why a G, this teacher simply wrote, hopeless. Hopeless. Ernest Easley had said that about his father. Have we ever been Hopeless. I mean, I think at times in our life, we're kind of not sure of what's going to happen next or what's going to happen next week or things are going on in our life and it just all seems like there's nothing working and we get that hopeless feeling. I think a lot of times we have. But in our text today, like I said, we find these two men walking down the roads and understand these two men, their lives, if they could grade it right then with Jesus, would have been a G. They were hopeless. They had no hope in their life. Their lives had fallen apart. Catch what they say in Luke chapter 24, verses 19 through 21. It says this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, says our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Catch what they say. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. First thing I want you to see is this. They had hoped Jesus would be the answer to their dreams. They'd hoped this. They had hoped he would change their lives. 
It was their hope that he would make a difference in their world. But now what they understand is all this hope is gone because now they believe Jesus is dead. They had heard the stories yet. They didn't know that he was resurrected. But to them, they're walking down this road to Emmaus. They come into connect with Jesus, which we'll see here in a minute. But they're living in a hopeless world in their life because their hope had died. To them, there is no longer any hope. In fact, they were probably filled with despair. They probably had defeat on their mind, and they were discouraged like none other. Now, understand, they had heard stories that Jesus might not have been dead, but that was probably gossip to them. That's probably just hearsay. That's probably just somebody making up stories. But listen to what he says in verses 22 and 23. It says, Some of the women in our company amazed us, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Now you can tell by their conversation about these guys and with Jesus that they didn't believe it. That they couldn't grab onto this idea that their hope of the world had died, but they could possibly be alive again. Why? Because dead people tend to stay what? Dead. Okay, whole time I worked in a funeral home when I went to Indianapolis to pick up a dead body. That was my hope at two in the morning when I'm driving back in a hearse with somebody dead in the back that they stayed dead. Okay, uh, it's not one of those things I wanted to encounter type of thing. You know, the guy pecking on the back window. Hey, can we stop at McDonald's or something on the way back? I'm starving to death back here. It's not what I wanted to hear, but dead people usually tend to stay dead. So for them, the stories of Jesus rising from the dead was just simple wishful thinking. They refused to believe in this false hope that it could possibly happen. There was a recent movie where one of the heroes mockingly said this, don't give me false hope. And the other character replies this, it's not false hope if it's possible. Okay? One person may say, don't give me that false hope. But it's not possible. It's not false hope if it's possible. You see, hope in God is what makes us who we are. And we need to grab onto that. We need to understand this wholeheartedly, that this hope that we have in Jesus Christ is what makes us who we are. It's the essence of our being. In fact, Psalms 33:18, David wrote, wrote this. He says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and those whose hope is his steadfast love. And again, he says in 71:5 of Psalms, For you, our Lord, are my hope and my trust. It's the very being of who we are. And what we are. You see, as children of a living God, we need hope in our lives. We need to grab onto this hope. We need to understand this hope. In fact, we need to not only grab onto it and understand it, we need to have it in our heart. We need to have it in our brain that we truly understand that no matter what's going on, we still have this hope. In fact, understand this we can't survive without hope. We can't survive without it. There was an Air Force instructor who once wrote this thing called the Rule of Threes. He said this. He said, you can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, three minutes without air, but not three seconds without hope. And when you think about that, and you kind of, in my mind, I'm going, yeah, sure, you can survive without hope, because I know people who right now are surviving without hope. I mean, it's in their lives. You can sit in their face. But I thought also that this is a military guy 
who's a, probably a military expert, talking about military men and women explaining the truth that soldiers cannot survive without hope. So think about it. These are soldiers. What happens when a soldier loses hope in battle? They turn and they run. They turn and they run. Then once they turn and run, what happens? The enemy pursues them and usually destroys them. It's a slaughter. And that's, that's what happens when you lose hope. I've seen churches in the years I've been preaching, been part of churches that, where I've been preaching that have lost their hope, where they don't see what truly is important. They're more worried about fingerprints on painted walls or maybe a dirty floor in the gym. I'm not talking about here, please. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I've been in these churches. I've seen it within leadership of these churches where they just lose hope. They lose sight of what's truly important. And they won't do what God has asked us to do. We won't get outside of our stained glass windows, get outside of the walls of our churches. Why? Because we may get more people than we can handle. And a lot of times with leadership, we get the wrong people in, or actually it could be the right people. They're going to take my place in leadership. And they can't stand that. I've had lunch with a minister, and I was a youth minister at this church years ago. And he's been there eight years now. And he goes, we've had to break down this family tradition leadership that's been in this church for years. And I said, I bet I can tell you the name of this family. Now, it's been 25, 30 years ago that I was a youth minister there. And I said this name, and he just grinned. He goes, that's it. You know, because they were doing the same thing then. This is a church when I was a youth minister there, little church out in the country. I had 40 kids in the basement for junior church. Right above me was the sanctuary. So guess what I was trying to do when they were singing? I was having 40 kids sing louder than they were. And I'm telling you, it upset some of the people. You guys remember. Some of your grandkids were in it. And it's one of those deals, and the minister told me, don't ever stop doing that. He loved it. Now, when the preaching was going on, I tried to do my teaching when they were doing their teaching and all those things. This church got big enough. We were looking at building this church was running 200 plus people. We had a new sanctuary we we're going to build. We we're going to do all this. This minister was gone for a week and I was preaching. After I got in preaching, one of the elders stood up and says, this not doing it. We've decided not to do this. We put it all off. So I'm in my little office that Dave and I shared and I'm going, what happened? That's one of the elders. What happened? You know what he told me? You're just a youth minister. Really? So I took a piece of paper out and said, I quit. Gave it to him. I said, you need to find somebody to cover youth groups tonight because I'm gone. This Dave got back from a vacation that next week. He called me at Lincoln. He goes, I hate you. I said, why? He goes, you got out here before I could, you know, type thing. And it's sad. They, 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 they lost the hope. They lost the vision of what God truly wanted. Now, what I find interesting about this story in Luke 24 is that these men walking to Emmaus didn't realize who they were talking to. They didn't realize who they were walking with. They didn't recognize Jesus. But what I found odd also in this story is what Jesus didn't say. When he came up to these two guys walking to Emmaus, he didn't say, hey guys, I'm Jesus. Really, no, really I am. Look, here's the piercing in my side. Look at my hands where the nails were. Put your fingers in there. Prove to it. He doesn't say any of that. He just walks with them. Jesus didn't say those exact words, you know, just because. Um, 
But also understand, Jesus told somebody else just a little before that who he was. Remember what happened with Simon? Where he questioned it? And Jesus said, no, really. Here, look. Go ahead. It's okay to touch it. Why did he get that five-minute illustration, but these guys don't get that? Thomas got to show and tell, but so what's going on? And my guess is this, and it's a guess, and I could be wrong. I'm glad Dr. Shaw's not sitting here because he could probably debate with me a little bit, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, and if you want to try to put me wrong, we'll get together this week and we'll have coffee. But understand this. This is what I believe why this happened this way. Jesus took the time to deal with their hopelessness so that we'd know how to deal with ours. Now, you got to love that. That Jesus took time to deal with their hopelessness, took all this time so that he could show us how to deal with ours when it comes into our life. I mean, all of us have faced these times of hopelessness where we're discouraged, downhearted, we're filled with a hopeless idea of everything's anything's going to change. Time where we've lost our job or our marriages have fell apart or our heart is deteriorating or when people were just simply mistreating us or times when things just weren't going right. But most of all, when we think about this, we have faced times where we felt boxed in and we felt trapped. We're kind of in a corner. We see no way out. And that's what we're talking about. But I believe what Jesus did for these two men on the road to Emmaus, one was recorded for encouragement and hope, but two, they were tools God gives for us in times when we get discouraged. And we're going to look at them. Notice the first thing Jesus does in verses 25 through 27. I mean, this is Jesus walking on these guys. Now, they don't know who he is. And he said this. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Catch on to that. The things concerning himself. Understand what he didn't say. He didn't look at these guys and say, You know what? You're depressed, you're downhearted, you're all these things. You just need a vacation. You need to get away for a while and just go be on vacation. Don't worry about everything. Or he didn't tell these guys, you know, maybe you just need to go find yourself. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I just need to get away and go find myself. You know what I tell these people? Where did you lose yourself at? You know, if you don't know where you lost yourself, you don't know where you're looking. So how do you lose yourself in that situation? Or he says, don't go get a drink to calm yourself. Don't go prove yourself. Some people, when they get in this idea, they need to do something grand. So I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. Okay, you climb Mount Everest, you accomplish that, but does it deal with what you're dealing with and that hopelessness? In fact, this is what we're told in Romans. Romans 15, 4. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So get this. What did he do? He opened the Bible to them. He opened the Bible to them. Simple. Here it is right here, folks. Here's all the answers that we need. The scriptures were written so that we might have what? That we might have Hope in a hopeless situation. The Bible is God's tool 
to change our lives and give us hope. And it's a powerful tool. Catch what Hebrews 4.12 says. It says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Just not our thoughts, but our attitude of the heart. Sometimes it all depends on how we go into the day, how we're going to look at the day, how we're going to treat that person that we don't really get along with. It's all about the attitude of the heart. You see, there is power in the pages of your Bible. There's awesome power. If you're not reading it, you're robbing yourself of the potential God wants to give you. You see, it is in this book that we find power to become overcomers in a difficult and challenging world. So let me ask you this. Are you reading God's Word? Are you taking time to read God's Word? And maybe you are. Boy, that changed things, didn't it? Fixed my microphone. If you are, and you're still feeling this way, and it's possible, please don't get me wrong, just because you're reading God's Word doesn't mean things are changing. But I think sometimes we get into this habit, we get into this idea that as long as I read God's Word every morning, I have my coffee and I sit down at 6 o'clock in the morning, I read God's Word, sometimes we get into this idea that just because I'm doing that, that's all I need to do. But sometimes we need to do something a little bit different. I try to encourage people, the young men that I'm kind of counseling with now that is in this hopeless situation, I told him to find a book of the Bible that he liked, find a chapter in that book. I just wanted to read that chapter every day over and over and over again. Why? You read it once, you may miss something. If you read it dozen times, a couple dozen times in a row, what's going to happen? You're going to read something. 20 days later, you're going, wow, didn't see that two weeks ago. And man, it's going to hit you, like what Hebrews just said, like a double-edged sword. And you're going to go, that is so cool. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. I do the same thing with books. If they're good, inspirational books, take a chapter, read that same chapter for a week. Man, until you can almost recite it. Because what are you doing when you do that? It's just not a here thing. It's getting to be a here thing. And I guarantee you it's going to make all the changes in the world. You maybe need to change the place you're reading the Bible. Maybe you need to change the time you're reading the Bible. Shake it up a little bit. Go to a park. Go to a lake. Take your Bible. Just sit and read. But take a different perspective on it and allow God to talk to you. And the Bible, please hear this. The scriptures have that kind of power. Its words can turn our hearts back towards God. When our hearts turn towards God, we can learn to trust Him. And when we learn to trust Him, then we have hope. It's a renewed hope, but we have hope once again. Now I want you to notice when Jesus walked with these men to Emmaus, He didn't stop and say, hey, we've got a tree here, we've got a rock, let's do a Bible study. Okay? He just doesn't do a Bible study with them. He didn't say, let's turn to the book of Leviticus and see what's there, this kernel of truth we can apply to our lives. No, he walked with them. He taught them about what the Bible said about his resurrection. In fact, our text said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It was a Bible study of sorts, I guess. 
but it's a very targeted study, a study that focused entirely on Jesus, on who he was and what he came to do. Now, there's all kinds of important things to learn about in the Bible, okay? There's all kinds of great stories. There's great morals. There's great things we need to put in our life. But get this. With all the great things to learn about the Bible, what's the most important thing to learn? It's about Jesus. We need to learn about Jesus and who he is. Because without Jesus, we have no hope. Without the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, this life is all we have. So if this life is all we have, we don't have who Jesus is in our life, we've got nothing. So what happens is we live, we die, they put us in the ground. Once they put us in the ground, what it says, the bugs crawl in, the bugs crawl out, the bugs play pinochle on your snout, you know, that's it. We become warm, warm food without the hope of Jesus Christ. But with that hope changes everything. Our hope is in a living Savior, a Savior who has conquered death and through whom we will conquer death. There's an old gospel that I love, and I love the songs we sang this morning, but this gospel song says this, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. Catch this. Jesus is our living hope. He simply is. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says this. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So grab onto this. I know I keep saying that, but grab onto this truth. Everything that we know about hope hinges on the living hope of Jesus, having lived, died, buried, and risen again. That's why Jesus spent so much time focusing on the Old Testament, what it prophesied about who he was and what he came to do. That's why Hebrews 2 says this. It's a little different version, but it says this. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So as I close, think about this. That's why baptism focuses on the fact that when we become Christians, God calls us to die with Christ, to be buried in this watery baptism, to rise from the dead as Christ did. To become Christians, we reenact the living hope of our risen Savior, to be buried, to rise again one day with him. And that's why one of the greatest hymns of the faith says this, I've said some of it. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always here. Remember how the course goes? He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. Where does he live? He lives within my heart. That's how we know. Now, most of you understand, most of us sitting here this morning are believers. We've embraced this idea. We have the powerful tool that we have at our disposal 24-7, and that's God's Scripture. You need to know it, but we also need to share it. 
And I know you're all smart people, and I'm kind of a smart guy, but none of us is smarter than God. And our words are not nearly as powerful as God's word, but understand this, it's in your outline. It's time to start using God's word to share God's hope to a hopeless world. Okay? I'm not saying we have to go downtown Danville and start preaching on the corners. But it's time to start taking this and not just putting it here, but putting it here and then start sharing this hope that we have. And we've got that living hope in Jesus. He offers something that many in this world do not have. And it's that simple hope. We're going to sing an invitation hymn. And I hope this morning... uh, that if we do have this idea or maybe we have this hopeless feeling or maybe we're not sure about the future or what's going to happen even tomorrow or even next week, that we can renew the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But also please understand, just because you listen to this sermon, just because you've seen these songs, just because you came to church today, doesn't automatically say, man, it's going to fix everything by tomorrow. Okay? It doesn't happen that way. But please understand that if we know and we understand and we believe that Jesus walks with us and he talks with us and he shows us and tells us what we need to do, maybe we need to stop and just listen to the one who's telling us and believe in the power that Jesus has in our life.